Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate. Pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. I want to start off the podcast by saying I'm sorry to you all. Sorry for the bad sound quality on these last few episodes. I found out what the problem was. I've corrected it. It shouldn't be a problem, but it shouldn't have happened in the first place. So sorry for that. And also give you a heads up. I've been uh, working on some technology uh, that will hopefully improve the sound quality of my guest. So being someone who doesn't have a professional studio, doesn't have the budget to fly people out, I have to rely on Skype. But Skype, as you all know, can be People can sound like they're talking in a tin can, but I think I've found something that will uh, solve that and uh, make that part of the audio sound a lot better. So look for that in the next few months. Hopefully we'll have that ready for you. As always, we're trying to improve the show. We take your feedback seriously and we're doing all we can to give you a good quality product. All right. So without further ado, uh, let's talk about today's podcast. So throughout human history, there have been these pockets of genius that have just flourished in the world. Uh, there was ancient Athens, where you had Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, all in this very short time period, you know, come out, and along with other Greek thinkers. Uh, Edinburgh, Scotland, during the Enlightenment, produced a lot of great thinkers that in- influenced uh, the modern world. You had you have Silicon Valley today. You have uh, Vienna during the 1900s. You have Renaissance Florence. So what was it about the, the time and the place? Why did these pockets of genius flourish? During, this t- during these different periods of time. Well, my guest today wanted to find out the answer to that. His name is Eric Weiner. He's the author of the book, The Geography of Genius. And what he does in the book is he goes on this whirlwind tour of the entire world to find out what was it about these places that allowed genius to thrive and what we can learn from these places. A fascinating read. It's entertaining. It's super funny, uh, but at the same time, enlightening. So today on the show, Eric and I discuss The Geography of Genius and what we can learn about creativity and genius from these different uh, pockets of creativity throughout time and uh, cultures. So without further ado, Eric Weiner, The Geography of Genius. Eric Weiner, welcome to the show. Thank you. Happy to be here. So you're the author of the book, The Geography of Genius, where you go on this worldwide tour of genius clusters, clusters that have popped up throughout human history. Before we get into the tour and the places you visited, let's talk about the topic of genius first. I thought it was interesting you began the book by saying, in the modern world, we are suffering a genius inflation. What do you mean by that? Well, what I mean is that we, we toss around the word a bit promiscuously. You know, everybody these days is a genius, and we have marketing geniuses and football geniuses and 
political geniuses, uh, maybe not so many political geniuses this season, but uh, in the past we've had political geniuses, and, and we all want our children to grow up to be little Einsteins and little Mozarts, and um, that's not the way the word was, you know, originally used, um, at least for the last few centuries. It's really meant, you know, someone who rises to the very top uh, of creativity, really. And that's what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about genius as a smarty pants or someone with a high IQ. I'm talking about people who really change the way we see the world with their creative innovations, you know, an Einstein or a, a Mozart or a Freud. Uh, and so, yeah, we, I think the word has been a bit diminished in recent years. This is interesting. Um, in the in, beginning of the book, you talk about how there's a small group of academics who study genius the very scientific approach. Can you tell us how this study of genius began? Or, I mean, who is the father of genius science, if you want to call it that? Uh, well, I think that would um, probably be Sir Francis Galton. Um, we're going back to the mid-1800s here, and he was a very odd British scientist and nobleman. And uh, and he wrote a book called Hereditary Genius, Right, and it was the first really scientific, in quotes, approach to the subject. Before creative genius was just this sort of romantic idea people had, but no one had thought to really try to measure it and study it. And he did. He got a lot wrong, though. Uh, he really concluded that genius was almost entirely hereditary. When in fact, now today we know it's not. Uh, but he at least started the ball rolling with an attempt to sort of empirically measure this thing called creative genius. Uh, you know, and to to try to put numbers to it, and therefore to explain it. I guess from then on, a, a lot of the genius was genius study was focused on the individual. Uh, there was a fellow by the name of um, his last name was Simonton. 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 Yeah, Dean Simonton, University of California, Davis, uh, who, unlike Galton, is very much alive and kicking. And uh, he really got this field called historiometrics going, uh, which is again, studying history through statistics. And he's a numbers guy who's taken that numbers approach, and he's he's really looked at these genius clusters, as I call them, certain places and certain times in history that have flourished creatively. And, you know, what was in the water back then? Well, Dean Simonton has spent the better part of the last 50 years studying, you know, what was going on. All right, so uh, you, you took this idea that you had, and you actually went to go visit these genius clusters to find out what was going on. And the idea was that it's not so much the geography of the place, but there's a culture in that geography, in that area, that's embedded in these areas that foster genius. It is. I mean, that's what I mean by the geography of. It's not, you know, oh, were there mountains or not. I mean, that's part of the equation. But really, it comes down to culture. It comes down to, you know, you get two or three people together and you have a culture. and You get two or three thousand together, you definitely have a culture. And in, in these places, there was a certain culture that I think really made genius more likely. You know, we were so stuck to this myth of the genius as this solitary individual um, fighting against the odds and 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 persevering. And that's, yeah, that's part of it, but that really misses the whole important part of the puzzle, which is they did this in certain places at certain times. Their timing was good. Uh, the place they were in, like Mozart in Vienna of the 1700s, was, you know, conducive to their particular genius. And that's important. Okay, let's talk about some of the places 
you've visited. For example, you start off going to Athens, and you didn't go there to study modern-day Athens, but you were there to figure out what happened in ancient Athens during this very small period. Um, and a, a lot of people think that the classical era where there's all this flourishing was very long, but it was actually really short. Right. And they always are, by the way. These golden ages never last very long, and that was true of Athens as well. Yeah. So how did this small city-state in Greece, and like you describe Athens as this dirty, inhabitable place, it's not that great, yet it was able to come up during this time period where they produced lots of geniuses like Aristotle, Plato, Socrates, and a bunch of other thinkers and scientists? Well, um, you're right that it was, it was, as I say in the book, a dump. Um, it was not a very nice place. Uh, and so we should just disabuse ourselves of this idea that genius requires paradise. In fact, paradise, if it existed, would probably be the least creative place in the world because you would have nothing to push against. You would have no need to be creative. Um, and ancient Athens was not paradise by any means. But they had a few things going for them. Um, uh, they drank a lot of wine, uh, which is no small thing, but they, they, they watered it down. They diluted it, five parts water, two parts wine. Um, and so they were able to sort of maintain a low-level buzz throughout the evening when they held these symposia, which means literally drinking together, and they discussed. And that's sort of, on the ground level, something that happens in all these creative places. There's conversation going on, slightly but not too inebriated conversation, and it's conversation of people from different backgrounds, and it's energized, and it's you know, at times can get a bit nasty, but no hard feelings. You know, it's it's all, everything's allowed. That's what happened in Athens. And they also walked a lot. Uh, in fact, they did a lot of their philosophizing while walking. Um, and they were not sedentary the way we are. And I think that's a good thing. In fact, there have been studies that show that we're more creative when we walk even 15 minutes on a treadmill, never mind in the beautiful outdoors in the Greek countryside, simply being on a treadmill for 15 minutes will make you more creative. Um, I mentioned those two, the wine and the walking, as important but not the most important factor. I would say the most important factor was their openness. They were open to the outside world. And in fact, they borrowed or stole, depending on your perspective, a lot of the ideas that we now associate with them, whether you know, it's theater or statue making. They, they, they imported these ideas, and then they perfected them. And, and so they, had, they were able to sort of absorb and then all these foreign ideas and foreign concepts and then improve upon them. And that's what all these places do. They don't create something out of nothing. They borrow from other places. And why did the fountain of genius run dry in Athens? Why did it end? In a word, arrogance, I think. And I think that's what happens to all these places. Um, they they get their success leads to arrogance, and once you're arrogant, you're no longer ignorant. And ignorance is actually one of the most important ingredients in creativity. Never mind creative genius. You have to know that there's something you don't know, right? You have to be open to the possibility that there's something to learn. And the Greeks, the Athenians in particular, uh, became pretty cocky, um, which annoyed their neighbors, and ultimately, I think, led to their demise as a as a great place. They also just sort of, in a way, if you if you stop importing as they did, eventually you you you're like a in your kitchen cabinet. You know, you have so many ingredients, and you can make various dishes with them. But if you stop importing new ingredients, you're going to run out of new combinations and new new dishes to make. And that's what happens as well. Hubris. 
Which is a Greek word. That's a yeah, Greek but which word. Yeah, which, which was a crime against the gods, too, which was a big deal back then. It was, you know, that's sort of what kept them in check for a while. They they did not, it was considered very bad to engage in hubris, excess pride and arrogance. And then all of a sudden it was okay. And, you know, and by the way, they became foodies at some point. You know, they were, during the Golden Age, they were, they were like anti-foodies. They believed in very simple meals, low-caloric intake, uh, kind of bland food, uh, and then they became foodies and started, you know, shopping at Williams and Sonoma or whatever the equivalent was back then. And I'm not saying there's a direct cause and effect there, but it's interesting that as they became into f- more into food, they lost their creative. Interesting. So the next place you visit is a Chinese city, and excuse me if I don't pronounce it right. Is it Hangzhou? Hangzhou. 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 All right, so it's a Chinese town. It's from an Eastern culture. And I like how you put that in there because I feel like here in the West, we have this idea of creative genius being, you know, you have to create something new, novel. You create something from nothing. But in China and in the East, they had a very different idea of creative genius. They did, and to some extent still do have a different idea. And that is that um, all creativity must be based on tradition. That and it must be useful, you know. As you say, we're in the West. We're really focused on, on this idea of novelty and newness. That you know, something must be really novel in order to be considered creative. Um, and the Chinese see it differently. You know, something must be useful in order to be creative. Yes, it must be new or new enough. But they don't really live under this illusion that, you know, that you can create something out of nothing. Um, and that's very much a Western idea. You know, the Latin ex nihilo means literally from nothing. That's the way God created the earth and heavens was from nothing. In the Chinese mythology, there was always something. There was never nothing. And so it becomes a job of a creative person to kind of rearrange the stuff that's already there in perhaps new combinations, but not to create something from nothing. So it's, it's, it's a, it's, it may sound, you know, esoteric and metaphysical, and it is on one level, but it also has a very practical side that, you know, that everything you create must be linked to what came before. Right. I guess one of the other factors, too, that you um, you see in all these places you visited, Hangzhou was going through some, there was some political turmoil, turmoil going on. Yep. These places are never, like, placid and completely stable. There's always a bit of tumult. Not all out war, I actually think that's bad for creativity, but uh, political intrigue um, or just just some churning of society. Uh, it's, you know, Graham Greene once said of Switzerland, maybe this is a bit unfair, but he said it anyway, 500 years of peace and stability, and what have they brought the world but the cuckoo clock? Um, his point, in fact, the cuckoo clock was invented in Germany, so there, not even that. But I guess his point is that you know, you need to live in interesting times, and that means a bit of turmoil and even chaos at times, which is actually good for creativity. I think that's interesting because I think there's a popular idea about creativity and genius. You know, you read these blog posts and books and magazines, articles on how to be creative. It's it's all about finding your little space and having your routine when it makes and everything's peaceful and calm. And what I found is what the research shows is that it's actually that's not going to help you. You actually need a little chaos in your life for creativity. Right. And, you know, and and I think that's important. And that's why, you know, all these attempts to sort of create the next golden age, you know, often governments are trying to create the next Silicon Valley or wherever, and they tend to fail. Uh, One reason, well, one reason is you can't really create one of these places. They grow organically. But the other reason is that, you know, government trying to mandate creativity is like trying to schedule spontaneity. You know, it's kind of a contradiction. 
the next place you visit is Florence to study the Renaissance era. And what I thought was interesting from this this chapter was that about the art. I think a lot of us modern Westerns think that for art to be pure and truly art, it has to be unsullied from money. I mean, it can't be connected to it. But it seems like most of the great art that came from Florence, all these great innovators, they they were created for commercial. They were created as commercial products in a way. They were created as commercial products, and they were backed by uh, one family in particular, the Medici. Um, and you're right. That's what I try to do in that chapter is to to show that the world of money and the world of creativity are connected. You know, Florence, like many of these creative places, it didn't have a lot going for it. It was malarial infested. It it uh, didn't have a port. It didn't have a lot of natural resources. But they used their ingenuity, and they developed the cloth trade um, by importing dyes from around the world and, and, and becoming really perfectionist and creating the best cloth they could. And that led to banking, which led to this family, the Medicis, and they had this sort of almost just really intense love of beauty, and they wanted to create it. They didn't want to be patrons for the reason people tend to do today, which is to look good or to feel like you're doing your share. They they actually uh, were into art and beauty for its own sake, and they had they were very good at, at talent scouting and, and picking out the, the artists that were that showed the most most potential, uh, like a young Michelangelo or a young Leonardo. And and backing them. There was a whole system of apprenticeship and a way for, and this is always the case for these places, for, for talent to, to blossom, you know, and, and that's what happened in Florence. I think it's interesting because there's some parallels to today. I mean, you hear people talking about, you know, cities trying to create centers of creativity, and they often do this by throwing lots of money at it, at the problem, right? So they, they want to create, you know, programs that attract creative types. Um, they create these centers where people can do hackathons and things like that. But it often doesn't work. So my question is, does the money come first or does the creati- creativity come first and then the money? I guess, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, you need to have some money and some resources, right? Or, you know, if you're, you know, if you're just a, let, let, let me put it this way. Um, if you're starving, you're not going to create much art. So the idea of this truly starving artist is, is, is a myth. You know, the starving artist doesn't create anything, um, you know, uh, anything but their own misery, really. Um, so you need some, but then it's what you do with the money. Um, you know, do you deploy it in a smart way, in a way that's likely to lead to genius? And, and, you know, you look at some countries in the Persian Gulf and elsewhere, they have lots of money, but not lots of creativity. Um, because you can't, you know, you can't just buy a culture and import it. You've got to, it has to be more organic than that. Wedding season is coming up. And if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made to measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. 
a lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. All right, if you have a family, then you need to get term life insurance to protect them. It's one of the smartest financial decisions you can make, and the start of the new year is the perfect time to get it done so you can focus on whatever else the year has in store for you. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. There's no risk to apply. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee, and you can cancel at any time. I remember when I was a new dad, I had a lot of thoughts going through my head. One of them was, how can I take care of my family when I'm gone if something happens to me? Well, so one of the first things I did, I got term life insurance, one of the best decisions I made. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash manliness. That's meetfabric.com slash manliness. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash manliness. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently, I went through the Masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. A lot of useful information in there. Talked about the value of knowing a negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM. Masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. Also, what I thought was interesting from this era was the role of the, I guess it's called Bottega. Bottega, is that how you pronounce it? Bottega, yes. Yeah. It means literally workshop. Yeah, these sounded like, they weren't just, they sound like like sweatshops 
of art almost. Art sweatshops, yeah. I mean, there were rough and tumble places where there were chickens running around and rabbits, which they used for various purposes. And and uh, it was more like a sweatshop than an artist's studio, as we might have this romantic notion. But yeah, and they were, they were essential to the, the creative ecology of the place, really. Right, so they're getting that chaos aspect again. And I also thought it was interesting how you talk about the, the master artist would let their apprentices work on their art. So it was very collaborative. Um, they made art that was very collaborative in the Bottega. It was. I mean, and you think about it, like there was this artist named Verrocchio who ran a workshop, certainly prided himself in being good, but, you know, he let a young, you know, 17-year-old uh, one apprentice in his shop paint uh, one part of, of his painting called Tobias and the Angel. Uh, and that 17-year-old was named Leonardo da Vinci, right, who was not yet the Renaissance man and the famous man we know. Uh, but it shows there was enough trust there. They were collaborative. They were also competitive at the same time. It was that, that mix that you always see. Um, and, you know, like Leonardo da Vinci and Michelangelo, they were very competitive. Uh, Michelangelo was younger. He was more the upstart, and this really pissed off Leonardo. Um, but it, somehow this, this competition actually brought out the best in both men. Then you moved to Scotland, to Edinburgh. And I don't think a lot of people understand, particularly in America, don't really understand the influence that Scotland had on America and its founding. I mean, all the founding fathers read these thinkers that came from Scotland, like Adam Smith and other others like him. Smith, and some of them traveled to Scotland, like Benjamin Franklin Ed was a visitor to Edinburgh, yeah. Yeah, so what happened in Edinburgh during this Enlightenment era that that fostered this genius output? Well, I, they, they had a chip on their shoulder, which is actually interesting, because they had just sort of lost their independence to England. Uh, they were, you know, certainly on the edge of the world, you know, way up there north and small city. And they wanted to prove they were every bit as good as people in London or Paris. And that motivated them. And their particular skill, I think, and I think they still have it to some extent today, is combining the theoretical with the practical. So this manifested itself mostly in, in medicine, for instance. A lot of you know, the early forms of anesthesia and other medical advances were made there. And it kind of makes sense because medicine is, you need to have a theory. You need to know how the body works and, and understand chemistry and other conceptual ideas. But you also, it needs to be practical. There's a practical goal here to make people well, prevent them from getting sick. Uh, and the Scots were very good at this improvement. They always tried to improve things. Um, so Adam Smith was there at the time. He's the founder of modern economics, which is a social science and theoretical, but also practical, right? Economics is about creating the wealth of nations, to borrow the title from his book. You talk about the practice of flighting. Flighting, F-L-Y-T-I-N-G. Nasty, it sounds like. The definition I was given as the ritual humiliation of your opponent through verbal violence. <laughs> this sounds brutal. but uh, And I, the, the historian who told me about it, uh, I said, well, we, he said the ritual humiliation of your opponent through verbal violence. I said, it really sounds nasty. And he says, oh, it is, with a glean in his eye, you know. And, and it's this idea, again, that you can have this conversation that is, you know, gloves off, kind of nasty and honest, you know, nasty in an honest way or honest in a nasty way, if you will. <laughs> uh, so everything is on the table. You say what you're thinking, but then afterwards you all head down to the pub for a pint or five because there are no hard feelings. And that's, that's kind of important to be able to have that open conversation, but to not get so personal that you make enemies. And the Scots were particularly good at this. That's really interesting. I guess we don't really have that much today. 
I guess some people would say social media is that, but you can duke it out there, but you don't have the beer afterwards. You just... No, they don't. And you don't have the intimacy that, you know, the true intimacy on social media that these places like Edinburgh and Hafton's had where, you know, these geniuses were friends with one another. Not always. There was competition, but often friendly competition, like Adam Smith and the philosopher David Hume. Best buddies didn't always see the eye to eye. They disagreed on, on religion, for instance. Hume was an atheist, Smith wasn't. But they were able to live with these differences. Uh, and I wonder if we're able to do that as much today, or we tend to demonize our enemies. And then you go to Calcutta. And I, were, I really wasn't aware of the genius cluster here, um, the flourishing of genius that happened in Calcutta, India, in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Can you tell us a little bit about what happened during this time? Well, that's why I included it in the book, because it was so unknown and and outside of Indian circles, really, and therefore surprising. We're talking the late 19th, early 20th centuries, uh, and it was it's now known as the Bengal Renaissance, named after the Bengalis, the ethnic group that's predominant in Calcutta. And you saw, I mean, you saw more books published at that time than any city in the world except for London. You saw the world's first non-Westerner to win the Nobel Prize for Literature, Rabindranath Tagore. And Tagore was kind of a Renaissance man. He was a poet and essayist and educator and activist. And there were scientific advances there. Uh, and there was a lot going on. And, um, you know, it was really this convergence of English culture and Indian culture um, that produced kind of third culture that was remarkably creative uh, and not that well-known. I guess there's that chaos aspect again. Um, you got the combination of different cultures. Even Calcutta itself, it's a very chaotic city with lots right. of people. Right. Anyone who's been to any Indian city, especially Calcutta, now known as Kolkata, is, um, yeah, I mean, just think that the visual, the, the, the stimuli that... The, that your senses are bombarded with just walking down an Indian street for one minute is remarkable uh, and has been for some time. And I think, you know, we now know, psychologists know that this kind of stimulation, varied stimulation, not being stimulated by the same thing, but by different inputs leads to creativity and an element of chaos, as you say, um, that, uh, you know, in order to get from an old idea to a new idea, you need to enter through a chaotic state. And that's true, literally true of your EEG and your brain. You know, when they hook up, they actually hooked up rabbits' brains to EEG machines and then introduced them to a bunch of odors. Some they were familiar with, others they weren't. When they were introduced to a new odor, their EEG got all chaotic and entered what the one neuroscientist called an I don't know state. And I think being in a chaotic setting triggers something in us. It triggers that I don't know state. And once you say, well, hmm, I don't know, maybe it's another way, you've really opened the door to creativity. Right. In Calcutta, you talk about, there's that theme of talking face-to-face. They have this thing called the Ada, I think is what it's called. Yep. And that the Ada was their symposia or their flighting. You know, it, it's a particularly Bengali kind of conversation that I love that they give a name for it, um, but it's it's unstructured. You know, I said to one Indian woman, you know, a friend there, uh, well, is there an agenda at an ADA? And she said, oh, no, an agenda would kill an ADA um, because the whole idea is it's free-flowing. Uh, it doesn't always lead anywhere, i got to be honest, but, but it's this idea that they value conversation enough to give it a special name and to set aside some time to just, we would say shoot the breeze today, but it was more than shooting the breeze because they were against some pretty deep subjects. 
Sometimes. Sometimes they talk about cricket, you know. But um, again, this idea of open-ended conversation is important. Then you highlight Vienna, which interestingly had two golden ages of genius. A double dip, yeah. I call it. It sounds like the, the double dip of genius should be a Ben and Jerry's flavor. <laughs> Maybe they'll pick up on that. Um, uh, yeah, because all the other places were kind of one shot and that's it. And Vienna it was fascinating because you had the Vienna of like, say, roughly 1780 when you had uh, Mozart and Haydn, Schubert and Beethoven was coming along soon. You know, this musical explosion, really, that was taking place. And then, you know, in the 1800s, not that much happened there. But then in the late 1800s, around 1900, all of a sudden you had another explosion of genius, but this time in many more directions. You had Sigmund Freud, who was probably the best-known character to emerge from that milieu, and you had an artist named Gustav Klimt, and you had, oh my, incredible amount going on. So much of our modern world came out of the ideas that were talked about and developed in Vienna of 1900. Um, but it was unusual, I mean, in that you had this double dip. Um, I, I think they were different. One was musical and one was more interdisciplinary. Um, but, um, you know, we don't think about Vienna and genius that much. We might think of Paris or London, but Vienna probably shaped the way we are more than those other cities, I would argue. And we're seeing a lot of the same factors in play in Vienna uh, with the political turmoil, because I guess they, they changed political hands uh, a lot during their their time, during their existence? It changed hands, you're right, under the Ottomans and then not. And it um, it also was on kind of the crossroads um, of East and West. During the Cold War, you know, it was the sort of spy capital of Europe. Um, and it, again, was a city of immigrants, especially during Freud's time. My God, I mean, Freud was an immigrant and probably... A huge percentage of the of the city was from elsewhere, from the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and all kinds of places. And that's something else I found: these places, uh, these creative places, all had a fairly open immigration policy, and they allowed in outsiders and their ideas. Right. Then, then the outsiders, you, they that they bring us new ideas, but they also the outsiders. You kind of allude to this in your book. They they have a chip on their shoulder a bit. Well, yeah, I think there are two th- things going on. One is the immigrant, you know, why are immigrants so successful? One reason is, and this is the more conventional reason, I guess, is they have something to prove, right? They they are hungrier. They want it badly. They're motivated. That definitely explains their success. But what about their creativity? And that, I think, is that they they see the world differently from everyone else. They're coming from a different orientation, and yet they're accepted. This is sort of the key. They have to be accepted into the new place. You know, African-Americans in this country during times of slavery were outsiders, but you didn't see many geniuses emerge in that community because they weren't accepted enough. I mean, they were truly outside the system. Uh, an immigrant like Freud, who was Jewish in Vienna, was accepted to, an, to a point. You know, he was, he was what I call an insider-outsider. And uh, and that's that sweet spot I think for creative people they they're outside enough to have a fresh perspective but inside enough so that their ideas resonate. All right, finally you come back home to America to visit Silicon Valley, which has been the hotbed of technological genius. What's going on there that's different from some of these other places you've visited? 
Well, it, it's a bit of an outlier in some ways. First of all, the chapter's not over on Silicon Valley, right? It's still, right. unlike these other places I visit, are historical, and you can look back and say, ah, oh, that was go- what's going on. It's, Silicon Valley's still writing its story, right? That's number one. Um, it also, all, every other place I looked at, every other golden age I can think of, really was an urban phenomenon, began in a city. And Silicon Valley began in farmland, essentially. It was known as the Valley of Heart's Delight and the prune capital of America, you know, and and that makes it unusual. Um, it's also, and to some extent, it is like these other places. It's like Athens in that it borrows a lot from outside. Not all that much was invented in Silicon Valley, not the cell phone, you know, not the venture capital. I even think the MP3 player was invented elsewhere. I have to check on that. Um, so what does it do? It 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 picks the good ideas. The venture capitalists, hopefully, back. They don't always do it, of course, but hopefully they're trying to back the pro- projects with the most potential. Uh, and then there's a, a sort of system to move to perfect the ideas, sort of like the Greeks. Um, and and so to some extent, it's like those other places, but it's different in that they're they're not really creating something for all time. And Steve Jobs pointed this out actually in an interview. He was asked to compare. You know, Silicon Valley with Renaissance Florence, and he said, "Well, in Renaissance Florence, they're trying to create art for eternity, that will be for all time, and we're we're creating something that's only good until the next upgrade." You know, so there is that difference there. I guess also in these other places, it seems like there's some intimacy going on, the face-to-face contact. Um, it seems like in Silicon Valley, from my perspective, it's a little weaker than that. There's connections and lots of them, but not really strong connections. I'm not so sure about that. It's, it, I mean, on the one hand, you would think, like, have you ever asked, wondered why Silicon Valley continues to exist? I mean, it really, it technically it should not exist because they're they're making products there and selling products there that essentially come with this message: you can be anywhere. You don't have to be in a major city. You can be anywhere, be with our digital technology, Skype, whatever it is. Yet all these people who are telling us this tend to live in one place, Silicon Valley. <laughs> so I actually do think face-to-face contact does matter, even in the Valley. Um, you're right that that may be changing. I'm not sure. Um, but it's kind of a miracle that it, it – and it shows something about the persistence of geography and the importance of place in our culture that, that it still exists at all. So what's the future of genius? Could a town take this or a nation state take this, your, you know, what your research you've highlighted and said, here's the blueprint for... Well, if, if I had the blueprint, I wouldn't be talking to you now because I'd be on my yacht in the Mediterranean right. sipping a drink with an umbrella in it. Um, that That's the fact, you know, and... So I'm not going to tell you that I've got the formula and, you know, for $9.99, it can be yours. Um, Dang it. <laughs> but I think there are things, there's just some things you can do to, like, make it more likely. You know, have an open society where uh, new ideas, people with foreign ideas are not automatically rejected. I mean, North Korea is not going to be the next place of genius. It's not because they're not hardworking or have good genes. It's because it's not an open system. Um you know, you can have places of conversation, encourage the kind of Scottish flighting or the Greek symposia or the Bengali Ada. Have places where people from different walks of life can come together. Um, be good at discernment. You know, uh, don't just come up with lots of ideas. Be willing to separate the good ones from the bad ones. Um, that's one of the keys of creativity, I think. So I, I sort of, even though I'm hesitant to tie things up in a bow, I. I do present a small bow at the end of the book, and I call it the three Ds. 
diversity, discernment, and disorder. And we've sort of covered those here, I think. You know, diversity of ideas, not just ethnic diversity. Discernment, again, you don't want to just be a magnet for talent. You have to be a colander that separates things out. And that disorder, that sort of chaos that we talked about. And um, all these places that I investigate and in the future, all these places, I think, creative places, will have those three Ds. But there's, I have to be honest, there's always that element of mystery. There's like, why here and not there? What's that extra spark? Um, you know, it's like my publisher said, I'm like, I asked him what the secret to a best-selling book is. He's like, if we knew that, we'd make every book a bestseller. Um, if we could create these places of genius, we would. And hundreds of places have tried to replicate Silicon Valley, and they've all failed. Yeah, it has a little bit more of that Roman genius, right? Yeah. Yeah, and um, and there is there's just kind of a boldness too in these places. It, it, it takes guts, you know. Ultimately, it, ultimately it's it is a courageous act. It, can I even say there's a little bit of manliness involved? I want to throw that in. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. In, in the best, I assume you're using the word in the best possible way. Exactly. Right? Yes. Yeah, so yeah. The Greek that, way, that, the Roman yeah, way. Yeah, that right. it just occurred to me now because I'm the art. Of, I'm on the art of manliness. That. And women can have this trait too, but it's a sort of it's a sort of boldness to say, you know what, I'm going to put my chips down here, and and I think we've we've lost that a lot of ways because, like, say you're hiring someone to do job X, you, you tend to just companies will just look for someone who's already jumped done exactly job X somewhere else. Where's the risk in that? You know, in the Renaissance, they would place bets on. Like, you know, the Pope at the time wanted to have the Sistine Chapel painted. He chose Michelangelo, unlikely choice, because he was a sculptor mainly, then very little painting. But he said, I think you got talent, kid. Come, you know, do some ceiling work for me. And now it's the Sistine Chapel. So if that's not manliness, I don't know what is. I like that. I like that a lot. Eric, it's been a great conversation. Where can people learn more about you and your book? Uh, well, I've got a great website, Eric Weiner, W-E-I-N-E-R, books.com, all one word, ericweinerbooks.com. I encourage people to tell me about which places spark their creativity um, to write to me there. And uh, and support your local bookseller. Go to your local bookstore and pick up my book. Um, and uh, I can't guarantee you'll walk away as a genius, but you'll have fun, I think. Well, I love the book. Well, Thank Eric, you. I appreciate that. Eric Weiner, thanks so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. My guest today was Eric Weiner. He's the author of the book, The Geography of Genius. Uh, You can find that on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. Uh, You can also find out more information about his work at ericweinerbooks.com. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And if you have enjoyed the show, got something out of it, I'd really appreciate it if you give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. As always, I appreciate your continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. 
Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application.